0: You're listening to Sue's Little Black Book, part of the Redshift Community Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by Creative Connecting in Cheshire. Hello, I'm Sue France, and each episode I will be introducing you to the inspiring and motivational entrepreneurs from My Little Black Book. We are back again today with My Little Black Book. And I'm talking to Susie Mathis, my friend and mentor. We did a podcast last week, which was going to be all about her life. And after 20 minutes, (laughs) realised we'd only scratched the surface. I'm so old. I'm so old. (laughs) There's so much to say. It does sound sound like that, doesn't (laughs) it? we started to talk about Radio Piccadilly and going on Top of the Pops and then time ran out. So I'm thrilled to be back here with you again today to carry on. So we'll start from that point. Which came first, Top of the Pops or Radio
1: Piccadilly? Well, obviously the Top of the Pops life was with the Paper Dolls, but that was just obviously recording and promoting songs. But I actually did get involved in Top of the Pops again, presenting it, but that was actually halfway through, no, third through my sort of radio career, which started in 1979 at Piccadilly. And just to recap, it was Stuart Littlewood of the Grumbleweeds management team that suggested I went into radio, not realising at all how much I'd love it. But I certainly did. I had the best time. I think I've been ever so lucky in my life. And maybe everybody says this, but, you know, being in the pop business in the 60s was fantastic. And being in local radio, so near the beginning of it, the infancy of local radio was a fabulous time, too. Because Piccadilly was loved by Manchester people. It was, I mean, it was truly loved. And so for me, that was a very, very exciting time. It started with the 60 Magic Minutes, which was just a Sunday morning at nine o'clock. And basically, I mean, I was just learning really what radio was all about and talking about more or less than the 60s, you know, really sort of 60s music. And of course, I had lots of stories about the people that I work with. So that filled the hour very quickly. And from there, I went on to my daytime shows, which was extremely exciting. They said that I was the first sort of female to have a daytime show on independent radio. Because there weren't very many women in radio at all at the time. No. It was all men. You know, every show was a guy. So
0: you're really breaking into a different sort of world, really. What's funny is when I mentioned on my group page that I'd talked to you about Radio Piccadilly, everybody's memories came back. Everyone came up with memories when they were listening to you at such a time, certain interviews. One lady mentioned an interview with Joan Collins, didn't she? Everyone yeah,
1: that was for your interviews. That, yes. that was so nice, and I, you know, that's the the most incredible thing, Sue, is that after all these years, and it is a lot of years now, I can, you know, make a phone call to somewhere, just a shop or somewhere, and they just say, "I recognise your voice. It's Susie Mathis. I think, how on earth can they remember me all these years on? And little stories. That somebody came up to me the other day and said. I'll never forget that interview that you did with I've forgotten her name now. <laughs> 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 oh, God, and I've forgotten her name. But she remembered, the lady she she remembered. remembered. But they just sort of have full memories of complete interviews. And It astounds me. It astounds me. But I was so lucky because in those days, I'd have three guests a day. I would have a local story. I would have a competition story with maybe a, a group of people from an office. And I would have a sort of star guest type thing, inverted commas. And whoever was promoting themselves, whether it be in the Palace Theatre or cinema or a book launch, I was very lucky because they became my guests. So I met so many people, you know, Joan Collins is one of so many. Charlton Heston, Jack Lemon, you know, these oh, amazing wow. people, just extraordinary. Rackle Welsh. I remember that so vividly because she was staying at the Britannia and I was sitting, waiting for it to pop over because it was just across the road, obviously, from the studio. And she said, no, she couldn't come because she couldn't get her hair rollers right or something was wrong with the rollers. I said, well, you know, darling, it it is the radio. (laughs) No one's going to see you, really, but never mind. And in the end, I actually went over to the hotel and interviewed her. Oh, wow.
0: She, She was quite starry and quite, you know, quite difficult, really. Did her son or her daughter marry someone, am I getting the wrong person, did her son or daughter marry someone in the north of England? That's ringing a bell with me now you say it, but I honestly
1: can't I'll have to go I'll have to Google, Google that it. after. It? Yeah. What did we do if we didn't have Google to find <laughs> out all these answers? How many times a day do I go, how old is that person now? Or what's
0: happening with that? Oh, all the answers are there on good old Google. Yeah, I wish you were back on the radio now in lockdown. It would be brilliant for you to be on talking about all these things and the personalities that you interviewed. Well, I would have absolutely
1: loved to have been on radio throughout this period of time. It's a fantastic time to actually talk to people. It's a great time to build community, empathy and stuff. I would have loved it. And strangely enough, I am going to be on the radio again, which is so weird to be speaking to you now because only, you know, in the last podcast, this hadn't happened. (laughs) I, I, I was volunteering for all sorts of stations because I've been so very, very bored very lonely at times and I wanted to do something so I thought I need to volunteer to do something and of course radio was one of the things I volunteered for I actually volunteered to do a zillion things but no one really came back and then this week somebody did come back and I wanted to be involved and do something towards areas in Manchester and I'm going to join Withenshaw Radio that's fantastic. But it's the largest audience for the hospital. So that really reflected well for me. I thought that would be really nice to do something for people in hospital. am just going to do one show and obviously it's volunteer. And so it'd just be something nice to do. I think the people in hospital there will really enjoy listening to you. That's fabulous. I hope they remember and I hope that I hope it's enjoyable. It has to be something I'm going to enjoy doing because radio for me was just such an incredible experience. The intimacy. The changes you can make in life, because through radio, I could help lots of charities. You have a platform and I used it, maybe maybe a little too much for charities, really, but it was very exciting. And on top of the wonderful in-studio situation, the opportunities were fantastic because I went to New York, did a whole seven days in New York, learning the most wonderful things about that amazing place. Did the 25th anniversary of Disney in Florida. Again, great experience. Went to Champagne in Epony and recorded live from there. So there were so many other things apart from being a studio that filled my life for all those 18 years, which I'm very, very grateful for. The ending was awful at Piccadilly, but I did get the chance to go back five years later when a new person took over. So my overlying experience will be Piccadilly. Oh, and what about television then? On to Top of the Pops? Well, this is another, here's an untold story. I went to see a clairvoyant. Her name was Carol Dunning. I can't believe I remembered that. And I can't remember that guest. One of the things she said was, I think your husband's having an affair. And I said, well, that's I don't, you don't have to be a clairvoyant <laughs> to know that. I know that myself, <laughs> but she said, you're going to be presenting Top of the Pops. I thought she was out of her brain. I bet you must be kidding. There's no way in the world. Anyway, about two weeks later, I got a phone call and, and they just said, please, will you come and present a couple of Top of Pops for us? And it was great. I had Gary Davis, who, of course, I'd worked with for a long time at Piccadilly and Bruno Brooks. He wasn't so easy, but Gary was fantastic. And it was a very nice, again, a lovely sort of experience. So, yeah, I've had some marvellous things happen in my life. There's been some horrible bits, but most of it's been fabulous
0: from that how did that lead to the Kirsty Appeal which was where I met you? Well
1: really it's all interconnected because I started raising money for France's children's hospice way way back and my big involvement was trying to get people to donate musical instruments for their music therapy. That was about 19, I think it was about 1991 or 92. I got very, very involved. And Sister Aloysius, who was the beating heart of that hospice, affected me greatly. She really was an inspiration to me. She just started a hospice. She didn't even have the money for the building, but she was, nothing was going to stop her. She knew it was needed and necessary, and she just went ahead. And by goodness, you know, power to her. Sister Ella was just sadly no longer with us. But I've been involved with her, I've been involved with lots of charities. The Neil Cliff Cancer Care Centre, very, very important to me. And of course, we sadly lost Neil this yeah. year. July the 18th he really Not was so long ago Yeah. You know, he springboarded me into charity because it was through building the Nealcliffe Cancer Care Centre coinciding with the Pat Phoenix by a Brick Appeal that motivated me to think well hey come on you're doing something already you're earning money I was sort of happy in my life at that time give something back and by goodness what you give I think in this world you get back in spades you know it's very very important to give as much as you can. So from Francis House Children's Hospice, there were lots and lots of things that I was involved in. And then one day I had a call from Sister Aloysius asking me to go into the hospice. And she said that, you know, we literally have no money. We have a few months and that's all we have. And I thought, well, what do you need? We need a safety net. We need a safety net of five million pounds. I thought, "Mm." (laughs) five million pounds. I mean... Five million pounds is not an event, is it? You know, five million pounds is, what on earth can you do to get five million pound? Mm-hmm. I couldn't see how that was possible with, with my brain in gear, trying to think about the best ways of raising money. And I've never been trained in raising money. It was just literally, if you have a passion for something, I suppose you try and sell it to as many people as you can. But I didn't know how to go about this one at all. And then one day I went to the hospice and I saw through the conservatory windows, this tiny little girl, this little frame rushing up and down attached to her oxygen and her oxygen not stopping her in any way, shape or form from running up and down. And she just, I don't know, something just clicked. I thought, my goodness, this little girl, she's very special. And all the children were special, but she had such beautiful I don't know there's something about her that was just seeped out an empathy a warmth so I asked her parents who were there Lynn and Steve would they consider her being a leading lady if we started a huge campaign to raise this five million and they said well she's only got six weeks to live Susie well obviously as you can imagine I mean that really was one of those moments where you feel like you've put your foot in your mouth and shouldn't have Mm -hmm. even asked the question the feelings of the campaign left because I thought, my goodness me, these people are dealing with the fact they might lose their little girl in six weeks. Mm. This is the story you know, of hospices, especially children's hospices. The wonderful thing about hospices is that you go there to live and tell those moments and your life can be so enhanced. So can your siblings and mums and dads, everybody's life can be enhanced. But you know, you're also facing the fact that there is you know, usually terminal illness Anyway, this brought everything home to me with a massive crash. And I thought, well, that's the end of The Leading Lady. But then they changed their mind, and Lynn and Steve said to me, you can use Kirsty for the photographs and to start this campaign, but the promise was that you'd never replace her. You couldn't.
0: You couldn't, could you?
1: That hit home. You know, you thought, no, absolutely. Well, I would never have ever considered it anyway, but I knew where they were coming from. Of course, she would be irreplaceable. And my goodness, she she certainly was irreplaceable. So that's how it all started. Then it was just literally a completely empty piece of paper with one little girl that I really felt at that moment had something very special. Turns out I was right.
0: I know, it was incredible. I don't know, but she lived quite a few years after that, didn't she? And I'm sure the kirsty appeal and all the exciting things that happened within it must have spurred her on and helped make that happen, do you think? I'd like to think so, Sue. I'd like to think that it made
1: a difference. Let me just say at the very beginning, the idea was that yes, Kirsty was the leading lady, but it was Kirsty's health that had to be number one.
0: Yeah.
1: And so you were always, I, myself and my darling Phil Taylor, you were always thinking about, well, okay, I would be the one that would try to create opportunities First thing we ever did was with Bill Tommy and that was sending out envelopes to tell people about Kirsty. And the first photo shoot with him, dressed as a postman, you know, get the photograph done, you do the photograph and then you think, well, is she still okay? And then, oh, hang on a minute. We're nearly at that, six weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah All right, well, let's get something else going here now, you know, and, and then you'd organize the next thing and not too big at this moment, but slowly, slowly, and she was thriving because she adored meeting these people. She yeah. ch- and she loved having her photograph taken. The more that we sort of went through these incredible scrapbook of people and finding different ways to get her to the forefront. The idea was she had to be in the papers, because once she's in the papers, then that's when everybody else will see her.
0: My experience, can I butt in and tell my I know I know well, I'm interviewing you, but it was on. <laughs> October the 6th. England versus Greece, I think. And Kirsty was the mascot. She walked out onto the pitch with David Beckham and it was the year my daughter had died. And you'd said I could help the charity. So that had happened on this Saturday and it was in all the papers. And it was on television on the Sunday, Kirsty walking out holding David Beckham's hand. <laughs> and on the Monday, I decided, I don't think I'd even realized this, I decided to go to your office in Altringham and knock on the door and see if I could help, right? Yeah. And you, you said, well, you can man the phone, the donation line is going crazy. You actually showed me how to use the card machine to take the donations, <laughs> which I'd never done before didn't know anyone in the office <laughs> ah. so, so I was sat there with the phone but because oh. I'd lost my daughter that year lots of people were phoning up and saying they'd lost a child or they'd lost someone mm. and sometimes I could say little comforting things so I was there all day taking money <laughs> and then at seven o'clock that night my husband Peter didn't know where I'd actually gone <laughs> ran <laughs> rang my mobile and phil answered it and this strange man and he said can i speak to sue and phil said she's busy she'll speak to you later and put the phone down <laughs> So that was my introduction to the Kirsty oh, so What a wonderful introduction. And I know David Beckham was part of it, wasn't he? So I'll go back to you now, but I just wanted to ask oh, a little bit. Oh, <laughs> so of course, I, I, and also uh, the other thing was that we had also
1: got to know about you because Phil and I were organising Tracy Shaw's wedding my
0: daughter's best and your daughter
1: great friend yes great friend and it was throughout that period wasn't it and then of course sadly she passed away yes and, and didn't come but it was all sort of that all came together because I mean it talk about juggle plates <laughs> 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 just ridiculous it was just a crazy time I believe that the Kirsty Appeal worked in those days because it was absolutely built on truth she did love Man United she did love Bobby yeah. Beckham. You couldn't have done it without that truth being there because I tried to get her to go out onto that pitch for a long, long time and I couldn't get anywhere with Alex Ferguson. So I contacted the FA. And the FA rang me up one day and said, will this do for you then? Because I would sent obviously, obviously, sort of I've tried for all these in my letters. I was like going mad trying to sort this out for a little girl that might not be here very long. So hello, don't hang about with your answer. And uh, he said, will this do then for you? Going out with the england Greece game with David Beckham. I said, oh, my God, that would be absolutely amazing. But I didn't tell Kirsty until her birthday. Uh because the thing is we didn't know for sure how she would be you were always on tenterhooks how her health would be because she was in and out of hospital throughout that whole campaign
0: yeah
1: one thing or another and having certain tests and this that and the other going on and also it was winter as you say it was October and I thought oh my goodness me we've got to be so careful when I told her she was absolutely thrilled thrilled to pieces. But we we literally, we put all these incredible clothes underneath the kit that she wore. Layers and layers and layers of stuff to keep her warm. And I stood in the tunnel and the tunnel going into Man United to the ground is really cold, really, really cold. But David was there and he turned around and went, Kirsty. And she toddled off. She didn't even <laughs> turn around to say goodbye to me. She's off. <laughs> she took hold of his hand. And then she started to walk out but the most important thing about that particular day is that there's been and are many many mascots a little bit more now that they give them a mention but nobody ever knew who those mascots were and I had to make sure that they knew who Kirsty was yeah. and I spent a long time speaking to John Motson and begging him please please make sure that you give her the credit. And it was because of John Motson saying, here's the star of the show, Never mind these boys playing football, here's the real star, this tiny, tiny frame. You know, I mean, goodness me, what a moment that was. Great memories of a, an extraordinary, inspirational little girl.
0: And then of course, she had another big moment with him, didn't she, the Commonwealth Games?
1: Yeah, my goodness me.
0: We had in between that, we had the child of courage
1: and the pride of Britain. And then leading up to the Commonwealth Games and getting very excited about them coming to Manchester, I contacted them and they didn't want to know. They didn't at first No, we're going to have school children doing this, that and the other, da, 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 da. They didn't want to know. And of course, I couldn't discuss this with Kirsty or anything because we didn't know what in the heck's going to ha- be happening no. with health. You were always, always very aware of how she was at the time. And so the months went by and that's when I got that's when I got breast cancer, of course. And so all that happened in the build-up to the Commonwealth Games. I went to the first meetings and then Philip went to the meeting and then they called us both then because everybody wanted Kirsty, and they also wanted to have David Beckham as if it was easy. You know, well, we'd like her to walk out. Well, can David come along? Can David do this? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> but David was playing in the World Cup, so we couldn't say for sure whether David would be available or not. And it wasn't until the day before, and I went to the area where the Commonwealth Games were being held. They were still painting all the this, that and the other. And we were in conversation with lots of people about what's going to happen with Kirsty. But it turns out they said, no, we're going to have Kirsty give the baton, the final baton to the Queen. And we don't care whether anybody's with her or not. So it doesn't matter whether David's going to turn up. It's hers. And Phil and I, literally, we just cried our eyes out. We were so proud of her. She was Manchester. You know, it was really important. And then, of course, the night before, I'm there doing the rehearsal with Kirsty because there's all these enormous steps and the Queen had to change royal protocol because it's the first time the Queen had ever gone down steps to meet someone. Everybody's always gone up steps. Oh, my goodness. And they were still painting all the sides of everything. And then I was there and then the phone call came. And I picked the phone up and it was David. I'm going to be there. And that was that. He'd obviously had the tracksuit made, hadn't he? But he yes. into...
0: It was very sparkly,
1: wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I still didn't tell Kirsty. I didn't tell her until we were sat literally waiting to go on to be called all the fabulous athletes coming round. And I said, well, it's going to be your turn. Are you nervous? She said, I'm nervous of the baton being very heavy. I said, well, you're going to have someone to help you. She said, oh, is it? Is it David? <laughs> yes, it's David. <laughs> and as we went out, I'm obviously holding the oxygen. As we went out and we waited for David to come round, the sight of David Beckham in that white tracksuit and Kirsty in her tiny little tracksuit and the two of them coming together. I mean, that was it was just beautiful. It
0: was an incredible be- moment. Yeah, it, it was beautiful. And then at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned 5 million.
1: Yeah. So
0: can I take you forward to another night, a night <laughs> which yeah. involves Ronan Keating? Oh, gosh. I still yeah. have goosebumps thinking about this. And I think everyone in the room would. Yeah. Do you want to just tell everyone about that?
1: Yeah, I'd just say, Suze, you helped so much in those days. Not to take that for granted. Obviously, that campaign, my lovely Philip, who taught me, well, he's not stuck with me very well, but I've never been very good at noughts on hundreds and thousands and millions and whatever, never. And I used to say to him, are we nearly there, Phil? He'd say, no, you've got a few more noughts to go. If if it hadn't been for him, I'd have thought I'd have done it months ago. I didn't realise just how much five million was. My goodness (laughs) me. It was enormous. But, you know, people like yourself, I mean, I think your involvement was crucial at that time for you. Oh gosh, yes. And I think it would also—it was crucial for us. You know, it was a very, very good meeting of people. That's the lovely thing about charity, isn't it? That's the wonderful thing that people can always help in some way.
0: Well, it did two things for me. It helped me after the loss of my daughter. Some days I would come in and there was nothing for me to do, and you'd just say, "Tidy that drawer." <laughs> so <laughs> <on> my house. <laughs> house would be a mess, I'd be tidying the drawers of the office, <laughs> but it, it was just getting out of the house,
1: and then, <laughs> but it was exciting, because we'd be in that office, and the phone would go, and it'd say, it's Bill Clinton's office, yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, blimey, you're kidding, you know, you never knew what was going to happen, because, I mean, I wrote to everybody in the world, so, you know, sooner or later, people were going to ring up, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it was exciting. And I think that was the thing we didn't we didn't have a, a, a map of how to do anything, but we no. did have a passion. And if you believe in something enough, you know you
0: just keep going, don't you? you just keep pushing and pushing yeah. until the door opens. That's why I call you my mentor because I also learned how to put on events through you, and that's why I'm interviewing you today because it's part and parcel of the events I do. So well, you, your networking has been extraordinary. Now I'm not good at networking
1: you're brilliant at networking. Well, you're thank you very much. I'm, I'm not. I'm
0: awful at it. I think it. you are. I think I'm you not. are.
1: I'm not. Well,
0: well, maybe we'll go back to Ronan Keating now to end this podcast because it's so that's wonderful funny. and it's a perfect way to end.
1: Well, throughout the whole of the campaign, there was always people that Kirsty loved. And Kirsty loved a DJ that we had called Richard. She adored him. I mean, he started doing some work for Phil and I when he was 14. He's now, I mean, he's just such a, a massive, massively successful boy now. He runs a big company called Sterling Sound. But in those early days, Kirsty adored him. And he used, used to get him to play whatever she wanted. And we'd always finish the Angel Balls with Ronan Keating singing, I love you best when you say nothing at all. And that was Kirsty's song. And We had actually at one point throughout that summer, well, it was the end of the summer, I wrote to ask Ronan Keating if Kirsty could turn on the the lights at Blackpool. And at this particular point, Kirsty was in the Manchester infirmary. She had gout and she really was struggling with gout. And I'd said to her, well, we could go and switch the lights on with Ronan, but obviously, darling, you, you can't go if you're not well. You know, You've got to get yourself better. Well, it's like phone call like five minutes after. I'm better, I'm better. <laughs> <laughs> I picked her up from the hospital. I took her back to my house. We got her changed into some lovely things and we drove to Blackpool and we got onto that stage and she met Ronan for, for the first time. And of course they had the song together and she switched on the lights and he held her and I was behind her as usual with the oxygen. And then when I took her back into my arm, she said to me, Oh, Susie, isn't he gorgeous? <laughs> we, that drive home, fish and chips and all lovely things and our lovely Philip and myself. It was just wonderful. We had great times. But as we were nearing the end of the actual the five million part of the campaign, it did actually go on to much more than that, to seven million. But I thought, well, the person that's got to be there has to be Ronan Keating. But obviously, again, never tell her, never tell her. It was a very very exciting evening that, and of course it was. I think it was the, well, it was Hilton, the Hilton Hotels' first big massive event. They'd only just opened on Dean's Gate then, and there was a wonderful feeling about that whole room. It was a fantastic feeling. Everybody was there. Everybody that supported us through the years, celebrities and otherwise, and lovely people that have been just great, great people with empathy with Kirsty. And then it came to the bit where she goes up with the DJ and then the music goes on. And then you start da 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 de, da 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 And Mr. Alfayad had sent a helicopter to get Ronan Keating to fly him up to Manchester, arrived there. He only just arrived in time. He was standing at the back of the stage with me. And then he had his microphone there. And he walked up towards Kirsty and as she was just singing this bit of a song and he just got up to the, the fabulous hook line I love you best when you say nothing at all well her face I mean it was just you couldn't ever repeat and it's hard it's you know we always say that those lines you had to
0: be there yeah, yeah. But you did have to be there. And you can but, never forget it. Ronan was on TV this week. Whenever you see him, whenever he comes on, brings you back to that memory. It does. It does. Yeah. It does, Sue. And, and for me, of
1: course, now, you know, that song, you know, is, is emblazoned in my heart uh, as Kirsty is. It's Yeah, it was a very, very special moment. And I think that she did live for those lovely days. She did. Yeah
0: she loved them we've actually come to the end of this podcast I know we're going to do another one with the next part of your life (laughs) (laughs) so I'm going to finish this one now and thank you so much it's been wonderful reliving all those memories thank you Susie
1: lovely for me too it's lovely for me too thank you thank you